Hello, welcome to Horrorcore Trash Shiver, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And we're back with another good film after S Club C and Double. <laughs> um, thanks for the reaction, guys. We've had some great comments come in about this. Uh, people, uh, one of my favourite ones was, uh, oh, does the S in S Club 7 stand for shit? Like, well, Okay. Well, wow, in terms of the film, yes, yes, it did. Yeah. <laughs> Shit clubs. What does the S stand for? Uh, I, I have no idea. Maybe it is shit. Oh, what does it stand for? I have no idea. Uh, me and uh, Daniel the Creepy Crapster uh, podcast came up with the idea of uh, doing a collaboration episode where we just review S Club 7's discography. I think we're only partly joking. Um... The discography. Yeah. Well, that's not... That's not that bad. Their songs aren't that bad. I think it was just a joke. Oh, the ones in the film are quite <laughs> bad. Uh, yeah, we've, we've had a lot of comments about it, so... Uh, yeah, it went down a lot better than I was expecting. Well, that's... The, we were talking as if nobody had ever heard of S Club 7. And then you've got people... Uh, I'm assuming British, but... Um, oh, some people genuinely haven't heard of S Club 7. Yeah. Um... So, well, at least the podcast was entertaining. Thank you for telling us. But we're back this week with a little less trash and some more great horror classics. Uh, we are talking today about the number one spot on our top ten zombie films episode. We're talking Dawn of the Dead. Yes. From 1978. Yes, the masterpiece Dawn of the Dead. And much like Psycho... Well, actually not like Psycho. Psycho, we couldn't do an original versus remake because the remake is shot for shot. This, we can't really do original versus remake because I think both really require their own separate episodes. Yeah, we feel that Dawn of the Dead, the original at least, warranted a full episode. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to digest in the film. I don't think it would have done it justice just as comparing it to the remake. No. A, a direct comparison. I feel like it needed its own sort of critiques. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, eventually we might even do our own uh, episode for the remakes of the Trilogy of the Dead, because they all have their own separate remakes. Two uh, are very well received, one the other's not so much. Um, obviously the other being Day of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've seen Night of the Living Dead. I, I haven't seen that. It was quite good. It was quite good. I think maybe it was a film that needed updating a little bit, but then the remake's like 30 years old to this so the remake might need updating a little bit. Uh, so, this is being released by Second Sight Films on uh, the 16th of November. It's available for pre-order on their website now. Go and check it out. Uh, so... The version they've released of this is essentially the ultimate version of Dawn of the Dead. There's been a lot of releases over the years. I don't know if anything's going to be able to beat this. Yeah, Dawn of the Dead is one of those that a lot of companies have released every now and then. and You get very different versions in Italy, America. Um, I, I had an American DVD when I was younger that was sort of an ultimate collection but then this this one from second sight brings that sort of bang up to date lots of new extras 
Um, it's Blu-ray. I mean, the one I used to have was deep this before Blu-ray. Well, I mean, the screener we were sent uh, is Blu-ray, uh, but it is being released on 4K. Yeah. Uh, which is one we've got pre-ordered ourselves. But even watching the Blu-ray screener of it, it's insane how good this looks. It looks great. You know, I mean, like Chris said, we've seen a lot of different versions of this film. Uh, this is the best it's looked and the best it's sounded. Um They've been working on this for so long now, haven't they? I think this must be yeah. easily over a year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously with the pandemic and everything, I think it's out a little later than they'd hoped. Um, but yeah, they've put a lot of work into it. And it, it looks and sounds great. And we caught a few with the extras as well. There's quite a few commentaries and, and such. Um, but there's new extras. The one we watched was Tom Savini doing a, a tour of modern day Monroeville Mall. Yeah. Which was interesting. Yeah, um, there's a whole hour-long documentary uh, with the bo- interviews with the bikers um, and the zombies. There's uh, a 25-minute talk on the production logistics. There's more interviews with Tom Savini. Uh, Document of the Dead, um, the very well-known documentary. Yeah, great documentary. That's that we watched. I'm glad um, that was on there because that's a great documentary. Yeah, the the dead will walk. Another documentary which we watched, which was really good. Um, there's a lost Romero interview, uh, and the main edition within the package you get the soundtrack, you get the uh, novelization. Novelization. Yeah. Thank you. That's what That's I was the word. For. Congrats. Um, you know, there's so much to come with this. It's it's great. It's like, I think it's like seven discs, six, seven discs. It, yeah, it's available for pre-order on our website, so absolutely go and check it out if you're a fan of the film. Or even if you haven't seen it, you just trust in our judgment. Yeah, I, um, I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, everything comes with a price tag. If you're a fan of the film, which I hope many of you are, um, then it's definitely a must-buy. Yeah, I mean, we we already own two of the versions of it. Um, one from Arrow Video, one from uh, Italy. And, and they just keep getting better <laughs> as they go yeah, along. Yeah, we are those people that has different versions. Only of, of certain <laughs> films. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... We won't be buying seeing Double and Blu-ray anytime No, soon. no. But <laughs> Dawn of the Dead is one of the greatest films of all yes, time. It's one of the greatest horror films of all time. And it is the greatest zombie film of all time. Um... Directed, of course, by George A. Romero as part of his uh, trilogy of the dead. Uh, the original, that is, uh, not counting the later films. Budget was $650,000. And it made $66 million at the box office. That's quite a mean feat to get a film of this scale. Yeah. You know, um, into a budget under a million. That, that's quite a mean thing. It's insane. And if, if when you watch the uh, extras, you realise that so many people involved were friends yeah. of the Romeros. You yeah. Know, um, him, George A. Romero and his wife, uh, Christine, who, um, and they really got involved and, and really were excited to help them with the project. Yeah. And it's like they were saying on the documentary, this is something that they thought was of too much of a big scale. Um, but Romero went for it and he achieved it. Yeah, and it's that guerrilla style of filmmaking where, you know, this kind of film wouldn't have happened if it was a Hollywood production. No. You know, it's it was filmed in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where um, George O. Romero is from. Um, so he had 
the ability to get people involved and to get them all involved as well yeah. on a smaller budget. Um, if this was a Hollywood production, I'm, I'm sure they would have tried to have recreated them all in a studio and yeah. it just wouldn't have worked. Uh, so, Tom Savini um, does the makeup effects of this film. Obviously, you'll recall us uh, discussing Savini on our episodes for The Burning, uh, Friday the 13th. Uh, maybe some more. Maybe yeah, some he's more. he's done loads. He's he's probably the face of special effects, really. Yeah. Uh, him and you know people like Rick Baker and, and such. He chose the grey skin, uh, this grey colour for the zombie skin. Uh, since Night of the Living Dead was in black and white, and the zombie skin tone was not depicted. Uh, he later said that he thought it was a mistake because many of them ended up looking quite blue on film. Some of them do look quite blue. Yeah, but then some of them green as well. Mm. I, I, you know, I'll help him out here. I sort of saw it as maybe a deterioration. Yeah. The, the sort of greener they looked, the further they were along. Yeah, I, I think the design's really good. I think that all the zombies look great in this. I mean, obviously, zombie designs, I, I think I've said before on a podcast, I think Zombie Flesh Eaters has the best zombie design from any zombie film, but... I think this comes pretty close. Yeah, yeah, and and you're thinking you you've got hundreds of people that you need to make up mm. in these zombie get-ups. They took like three hours each. Yeah, so you can't go too far with it all. Some of them, some of them, they do go a little further, and it, it really stands out as great work. But you can't, you you just can't. You you got to give people the benefit of the doubt and say, you know. At least we can differentiate between the zombies and the humans. Uh, the children zombies are actually niece and nephew in real life of Tom Sabini. And they're the only zombies in any Romero uh, zombie film that actually run and don't do the uh, trademark zombie shuffle. <laughs> oh, yeah, they do. They probably go for it, don't they? <laughs> so Dario Argento uh, was an admirer of George Romero's work and uh, vice versa. When Argento heard that Romero was contemplating a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, he insisted that Romero come out to his native Rome to write the script without any distractions. Romero not out the script in three weeks, and although Argento read the script as it came out, he left all the writing to Romero. Uh, Argento also provided most of the film's soundtrack, and in return for the rights to edit the European version of the film, assisted in raising the necessary funds. Yeah, this was very much... This is almost like a, an Argento passion project, because of how much he loved Night of the Living Dead. He wanted this to happen. Yeah, because Argento was very well established by this point. Yeah. This is after uh, Suspiria, wasn't it? This was after Suspiria. Whereas George Romero really wasn't. He did Night of the Living Dead. And then he did uh, Season of the Witch. There's always Vanilla, The Crazies, Martin. Which, are, you know, Martin is a fantastic film. Love Martin. Crazies is a good film. Yeah. Um, but they didn't really do much. They didn't have the impact that Night of the Living Dead did. So George Romero was very famous in Pittsburgh which is why he could get everyone involved. But on a bigger scale, he just, he, he wasn't there. Whereas Argento had many, many successful horror films yeah. behind him. But, and, you know, massively successful in Italy, but also in America, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure films like Suspiria, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, um, Four Flies on Grey Velvet had an audience in America. So, so he had a bit of, Leave way to, to help Romero. 
Yeah, and, and of course he did his own cut of the film, which you've seen. Um, yeah, seen. I've seen the European cut. Um, it's a lot more action-based, I found. Um, it, it actually got rid of quite a bit of the, the horror elements. Um, Dawn of the Dead, and, and we'll discuss this as it goes, but Dawn of the Dead for me is more of an action film than it really is a horror film. Mm. There's horror elements to it, but for me it's it's more of an action film, um, and the European cut takes that a little further. Yeah, and today we'll be discussing the theatrical cut, um, but the new version does come with all three versions. Yeah, so the director's cut, theatrical cut, and... European cut. I'll be honest, I, I've only seen the director's cut prior to this and I couldn't really tell much difference. I don't think there's much to it. It's seven minutes longer. Yeah. But I'm not sure what he added in. I mean, I've seen all three and I, I can't really, apart from the European cut, which, which cuts quite a bit of time out of it, I can't really differentiate between the theatrical cut and the director's cut too much. Mm. You get the same gist of it all. Yeah. Really. The extras who appeared in this film were reportedly given one dollar in cash, a donut, and a Dawn of the Dead t-shirt. Nice. I'd have happily took that payment to work in this film. <laughs> a filming at the Monroeville Mall uh, took place during the winter of 1977-78, with a three-week uh, reprieve during the Christmas shopping season. Uh, filming at the mall began around 10pm, shortly after the mall closed and finished at 6am. The mall didn't open until 10.30, but at 6 the music came on and no one knew how to turn it off. There were a few bars in the area and Savini remembers making up zombies who would then go to the bar and drink. Everyone uh, agreed this probably had their performances. Savini does say the drunk zombies caused damage, particularly a couple who stole a golf cart and crashed it into the mall. It was into like a... Uh, a pillar in the... Oh, yes, to pay for the damage. Yeah, out of all the films we've ever discussed on this podcast, this one seems like it was the most fun to make. Normally we'd have a bit of tea to spill, like, uh, you know, people falling out, people injuring themselves. I mean, Tom Savini injured himself, but he's still laughing about it now, so... Yeah. It, yeah, this definitely seems like it was so much fun to make. Yeah, it sounds like everybody got on, actors, producers, directors... Uh, special effects. Everyone just had a fun time making a fun film. Who didn't have a fun time with it is the MPAA, who threatened <laughs> to impose the X rating if George A. Romero didn't make cuts. Romero didn't want to cut the film, but he also didn't want an X rating due to its stigma of hardcore porn. In the end, Romero was able to persuade his distributors to release the film with no rating, although on all advertising and trailers there was a disclaimer that in uh, effect reads that whilst there's no explicit sex in the film, the movie was of such a violent nature that no one under 17 would be admitted. Okay. And this is, for its time, very, very gory and very graphic. Yeah. Violence. Yeah, but it, it's in a fun way. Yeah. And then that sounds weird to say it, but it, it's um, almost like a comic book style yeah. gore over the top. Very over the top. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it stand out so much. I mean, whereas you got, like, as we mentioned, Suspiria, uh, which really did go all out on the gore and didn't hold back at all. Mm. Um, but that was played, yeah, as much as it was a fancy horror film, it was played with a little more realism. You know, you get to see a knife going into a heart and mm. things like that, you know. And even 
Argento's other films like Four Flies and Grey Velvet as well um, you know you already had that by this point and of course you had Herschel Gordon-Lewis out there making films by this point as well um, but because this obviously this reached a much more I think this got quite a more mainstream audience I mean, it made six, six million at the box office yeah um, I think it may have been a bit more shocking yeah it, it is it is very gory and it is uh, explicit in it it's gore you know we see insides and limbs and all that business and there's many different ways people are killed uh, in the film but for me it's the difference between seeing murder on screen mm. and seeing death scenes on screen if yeah. you know what I mean so a lot of the violence is against sort of zombies. Yeah. So it's not depicted like murder. No, no one's being murdered. It's zombies being taken out, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it, it is sort of that old um, Western style of uh, killing on screen. Yeah. Where, it, where it's the people that are being killed don't really mean anything. Yeah. Whereas in like slasher films or you know as you said Suspiria the murder actually means something and it is a murder Mm -hmm. so it's different it's a different context to the gore and the violence Galen Ross uh, is in this is her first film I believe she I think she'd acted before this this is her first Uh, she refused to scream during the film she felt that her character was a strong female character and if she screamed the strength would be lost. As she told us to Romero once, and he told her when he told her to scream, and he never asked her again. And most of the fighting done by her character uh, was requested by Ross because she refused to play a character who would not fight the zombies on her own. Yeah, and it massively adds to the film. It does, especially when you come when you're following when you're a sequel to a film with a character like Barbara, yes. who spends the whole film whinging and moaning, not doing a single useful thing. Um, you know, it's very much the difference between having a female character who's there for being a victim for and having a female character who's there as a proper protagonist, a strong female lead. You know, look at the two films as the comparison. Yeah, and you see that develop between the three uh, Living Dead films. Yeah. You see Barbara, who's a big old wimp. Yeah. You see Francine mm-hmm. in, in, in Dawn of the Dead, who takes it a little bit further. Yeah. You know, um, she's stronger. There are moments where she's a bit, you know, uh, not wimpy. Well, you see it develop as it goes yeah, on. Yeah, you see it develop as it goes along. And then you get in Day of the Dead where the lead is a female. Yeah. Which she is a strong female. Mm-hmm. She takes shit and, you know, she gets the job done. Yeah. So you see that development uh, through the three films and it's it's good to see that. It is good to see that. And during the documentary watch, Galen Ross is actually quite proud of this and made a point of saying that this was actually before Alien and before horror films went into the whole feminist side of things. But, I mean, she's right to a certain extent, but don't forget before this, we did also have uh, Sally in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, of course, Jamie Lee in Halloween. Yeah, so you had the final girl. Yeah, the 70s developed the final girl, I'd say. But the final girl was always the victim. Yeah. Whereas in this film, because it's a different kind of horror film, mm-hmm. for me personally, and because it's more action-based, uh, Francine never comes across as a victim. No. And well, look at Zombie Flesh Eaters, too, where they, 
<laughs> not a sing. Well, actually, the whole of that franchise where not a single female character is given a gun. Yeah. You know, yeah. look at that compared to this. Exactly. Francine, for me, she's not necessarily fighting back. She's fighting for survival from the get go. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, with such a shoestring budget, the film couldn't afford professional stunt people outside of drivers. So Tom Savini uh, and his assistant uh, volunteered for the task. They uh, are responsible for almost every stunt scene in the film. They're not all were perfectly as planned. Uh, as we mentioned, Tom Savini had a bit of an accident where he the scene of his death, where he jumps over a banister and was meant to land on a bunch of cardboard boxes. He missed and his foot landed on the floor. I think Tom Savini's one of those who say, yeah, I'll give it a go. Yeah. What's the worst that could happen? Much of the fake blood used in the film um, were, were blood packets containing a mixture of food colouring, peanut butter and cane sugar syrup. Yeah, it doesn't look... It's very bright red. Very argenta. Yeah, and it, it almost looks like paint. Uh, like red paint. Uh, which works. It works for yeah. the film. Well, Romero was happy with it because it added to the film's comic book style, mm-hmm. but Savini wasn't entirely happy with it because it looked fluorescent. It did look a little fluorescent. <laughs> well, it's, it's quite striking behind the grey background of the zombies, you know? Yeah. So it's a striking image, this, this blood. Very comic book, I agree. Very comic book. Uh, it was intentionally more comedic as well because of this comic book style, which it is very jarringly noticeable, isn't it? The comedic elements. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it works. It it does work. It works with what Ramiro was trying to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Tom Savini chose his close friend, uh, uh, Jim Crook, to play the helicopter zombie because he was notorious for having a low forehead. That forehead is some else. It was. There was an interview in the uh, documentary, wasn't there, with the guy? Yeah. And his his head didn't look too big in the interview. Um, obviously, it was many many years later, but in the film, his forehead is fucking massive. Yeah. It's an eight head. It's not even a forehead. It's an eight head. <laughs> this was banned in Queensland, Australia, until nineteen eighty six. Just Queensland. Yeah. Okay. Nowhere else. Just Queensland. <laughs> Uh, George was introduced to Goblin, the Italian band who did soundtracks for a number of horror films through Argento. Uh, since Argento had the rights to change the music in Dawn of the Dead for release in foreign markets, he had the band create a soundtrack for it. And Romero mentions he had the option to use some or all of Goblin's score if he chose to, and he uses it periodically throughout Dawn of the Dead. And Goblin uh, provided some of the greatest soundtracks in horror history. Yeah. And yeah. this is this is definitely one of them. This is this is and it it's not your typical horror soundtrack and it works so well for the film. It really yeah. does. Uh so the pie fight there's a there's a pie fight in this film. <laughs> and uh Chris Romero was against having it but because uh, she thought it was stupid, but Romero went ahead and did it and uh there's also a shot of Romero, uh, George Romero and Chris Romero running through the scene as a mall Santa and an elf zombie, uh, but it was blocked out of the scene. Of the scene, you can't really see it much now uh, on there. <laughs> we'll talk about the fire pipe later. The what? Pie fight. The fire pipe. Fire pipe. That's pie what you pipe. said. Is it? I don't yeah. Know. 
Um, there's a great dispute over the film's alternate ending, uh, which involves Peter shooting himself in the head, and Frank committing suicide by sticking her head into the blades of the helicopter. That would have been really grim. And it was filmed, apparently. Um, the effects were made for it, and I think it was filmed. Um, but in the end, they wanted something a little more cheerful to end the film on. I think so. I, I think it was necessary. Uh, and obviously, we'll discuss it more later. What I heard was that the exploding head at the beginning yeah. was what they used for Francine's head. Yeah. So they hadn't filmed the helicopter suicide, but they'd made a cast of Galen Ross's head. So they decided to then use that at the beginning for the exploding head. Okay. I, I think there's differing stories on mm. that one. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think that ending would have worked. No. I don't think it was necessary to have be so downbeat, especially after Night of the Living Dead had such a downbeat ending. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Romero has said several times that David M.G., M.G., I don't know, I wonder to say his name. I would say M.G. David M.G.'s Zombie Walk is his favourite out of all the dead movies. And he's even gone on to compare it to a performance worthy of Lon Chaney. Yeah, it's fantastic. It is. It's fantastic. It really is. I don't know how he manages it, but that is some fantastic zombie acting yeah. there. Real cow intestines were used in the scene where Sledge gets his guts ripped out. <laughs> Very clean, as they told us. And, yeah. Uh, the, the guy playing him didn't want the uh, like really dirty minging cow and what intestines uh yeah cow, cow intestines, intestines uh, next to his body so he washed and scrubbed and bleached them before so they come out like superbly clean <laughs> and finally the body count for this film is 93 17 humans and 76 zombies there we go <laughs> 93 can you count did you count them all um no I got no. it straight from a reliable source <laughs> So, the plot for the film is following an ever-growing epidemic of zombies that have risen from the dead. Two Philadelphia SWAT team members, a traffic reporter, and his television executive girlfriend seek refuge in a secluded shopping mall. And we start the film with what I think is a very iconic image. Yes. Um, you know what film you're watching straight away if you see this. Uh, red carpet on the wall. Something yeah. as simple as that. You can tell it's 70s. It's as, on the wall. I've noticed as the restorations have gone on, this has got more red. Uh, I'm pretty sure this looked yellow when I first watched it on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's uh, red carpet on the wall. Francine waking up to find out that, and I quote, shit has really hit the fan. Yes. Everything's she's going crazy. She's from a nightmare, hasn't she? Yeah. So she's, she's woken up from a nightmare. Uh... Spoiler alert, she's still in a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's a great opening. It yeah. It really, really is. Everything's going crazy at the news station. Um, it's very, very intense opening five minutes. Yeah, everybody's losing their shit. They don't know what they're doing. The The two guys, uh, one of them's the, the host and he's interviewing a, a scientist. They're arguing. The people in the studio are shouting over each other you can't really tell what they're shouting but it seems to be against the scientists saying you know you're full of shit you know what actually is going on they, they can't believe what's happening is actually happening yeah and what actually is happening is you know people are uh, 
people, zombies are killing people and the people it kills get up and kill others, you know? So they're not believing any of this. Um, they have uh, rescue stations scrolling on the TV and Francine questions why they're still scrolling when it's already been identified that they've had to close. She gets them to stop the scroll across, telling people to go to these rescue stations because they're false. Yeah. Her manager seemingly comes out and starts having a go at her, saying that if they don't have these rescue stations scrolling on the TV, they're going to lose viewers. Yeah. Um, which Ramiro's gone on record and said that the, you know, the... Uh, themes and the critiques of consumerism and um, modern society, let's say, in this film. He's not subtle about them and he didn't want to be subtle about them. They're there, you know. You'd have to be a dummy not to see it. Yeah. And this dude turning around and saying, well, we've got to have these false rescue stations on screen or people aren't going to watch the show. We're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, but his viewership is still top priority. Yeah. That made me laugh. Yeah, it's um, there's, there's a lot of must just be found in this film. Um, whereas Night of the Living Dead, you know, some of it could have been open to interpretation. This one makes you very aware of what it's trying to say. Yeah, and it's there's a real development, and I'll keep going on about this because I, f- I feel it's true, between the three films. Night of the Living Dead, very low budget. Very subtle in its commentary. Mm-hmm. There's commentary there, yeah. but it's a lot more subtle. Everything about it's more subtle, apart from Barbara, who is not subtle at all. Dawn of the Dead brings that further... Yeah, further on. And then Day of the Dead takes it all the way. Which, some you know, sometimes people don't like Day of the Dead because maybe it takes it a little too far. Mm-hmm. But Dawn of the Dead just takes it that little step further yeah. and is more explicit in its commentary. Absolutely. So uh, we're introduced to Stephen, who is Francine's boyfriend... Yes, old good old Stephen in his leather jacket. Yeah, he uh, tells her to meet him at nine because someone has to survive. Yeah, um, I suppose he's right. Yeah, somebody has to survive. He's um, got access to a helicopter, mm-hmm. which puts them ahead of anyone else there yeah. who are going to have to be leaving on foot or in in cars and such. So they've got an advantage over everyone else, and he's like. Do you know what? The world's going to shit. Maybe we need to be selfish. Yeah. I'm only taking you with me. There's a SWAT team uh, on the roof of a block of flats and a racist guy with a massive moustache. He can't wait to shoot anyone who's not white, basically, and uses a bunch of racial slurs. Yeah, so I'm assuming this is like a housing project. Yeah. um, Where it is a lot of ethnic minorities there, a lot of black and um, Hispanic people Mm -hmm. are there this guy is clearly a massive bigot and uh, he cannot wait to get in there and start shooting anyone zombie or not zombie you you can really tell he's a piece of shit yeah as soon as uh as soon as the doors open and some people walk through 
He's shooting them straight away. He goes into the building. He's having the time of his life shooting people. Um, one specific scene, which we mentioned when we were talking um, about the special effects, is he blows a guy's head off and it looks fucking disgusting. Oh, yeah, it did. This really... When I first watched the film, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, this is straight away. This is your first, what, ten minutes of the film? Yeah, and this is what Tom Savini has said in interviews. If this happens within the opening sequence, you know, what's going to happen by the end of the film? Absolutely. It, it's it's very, very well well placed. It, it really is uh, jarring in, in the best way possible. And, yeah, it's just out of nowhere. It's pure action film, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Shot in the head, exploding head. You know, it really is. Um, I'll say it now... Um, if you replaced in this film zombies with terrorists, yeah, and you replaced our main main characters with Steven Seagal and Jean Claude Van Damme, you have an action yeah. film. You really you don't have to change anything else. You have an action film where you know people are getting shot left, right, and center, exploding heads, all that business. You know, you watch something like Predator. Very gory film, mm. very over the top, and I don't think it's that far removed from those sort of films. No, which is great. It's such an enjoyable watch. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the team tries stopping Mustache, racist Mustache guy, uh, and in the end, he refuses and just gets shot. Thank God. Yeah, and he um, just before that, we're introduced to Roger, aren't we? Yeah. So Roger is with another SWAT guy. And this SWAT, the other SWAT guys, you can tell he's very nervous. Roger tries to comfort him, and you sort of you're in this moment where you're like, "It'll be okay, you'll be all right." And then the guy gets shot in the head yeah. straight away. I'm like, oh god! So these these moments straight away where you're like, Jesus Christ, where you know, you meant to lead us in subtly. You meant it's meant to be a slow start, and you're just straight away people getting exploding heads and. Um, characters we we may have liked getting shot straight away. Yeah, I mean, it, after that point, it is just uh, it's just five minutes of non-stop action and gore, and um, a zombie gets up whilst the SWAT officer can't load his gun. A big hair zombie attacks them and gets shot. A uh, woman tries to protect a zombie boyfriend and gets bitten. But yeah, by a zombie by boyfriend. a zombie boyfriend. Um, SWAT officer shoots himself after killing a zombie. It's just madness. Just absolute madness. Yeah, so all that's going on and uh, Peter needs some time to, to throw up, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he goes into the cellar and he meets another SWAT team member. Uh, who Rod, um, Roger. Roger. Peter. Peter. I'm getting confused. My Rogers and Peters. Roger has to go throw up. And he meets Peter. Now, Peter's the guy who shot the racist dude. Yeah. Um, and they, they start talking, don't they, in the basement. Mm -hmm. And they're interrupted by a priest who's missing a leg. Yeah. And they mistake him for a zombie to begin with. Uh, because he's missing a limb. And, and he just wants to pass to go, I think, go see his sister or something. Yeah. That lives in the apartment block. Um, he's been given the last rights to people in the basement. And he says, we must stop the killing um, or lose the war. 
uh, which which I think is a theme that runs throughout the film. Actually. Oh yeah, I think it's quite important. Yeah. Um, where you know when people get too trigger happy, then that's their downfall, and we'll see that further in the film. And uh, Peter is played by court film legend Ken Foray. Yes, also known as um, Keenan's dad in Keenan and Kel. Oh, that as well. Yeah, that's how I know him. Keenan's dad in Keenan and Kel. Um, so the priest warns him about other zombies in the cellar, and Peter and Roger go and find them eating each other, and uh, Peter shoots them, and uh, Roger shoots the final one before it could bite Peter. Yes, and Peter, um, I'm going to keep doing this. Peter, Peter, who's Peter? Ken Foray. Okay, Roger. <laughs> I did so well during the film. As you know, I'm terrible with names. Um, so Roger asks, why do these people keep them here? Because they've kept them in the cellar. Whereas really they should have, they've had guns because yeah. they've been shooting back the people living in the apartment block. And, uh, and then Peter says, well, because they still believe in respect in dying. Yeah. So they don't want to, they think that if they were to kill them all off, which is what the SWAT team have gone in and done and very disrespectfully. Mm-hmm. that bloke who's just shooting willy-nilly every, every person he sees, they still see a respect in allowing people to die yeah. themselves. Peter and Roger meet up with Stephen and Francine. They all get into a helicopter and fly off. Yeah, so um, Roger is friends with Stephen and Francine, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And they all meet up as, as a force. But... Um, Stephen's a little wary of Peter to begin with. Yeah, um, I'm not. I'm not sure why that is. I think Stephen is, like he said earlier, some of us have to survive. Yeah, maybe he's been a little selfish about it, and he's like, well, "Who, who the hell is this guy? You know, I'm here to save my friend and my girlfriend." Um, maybe there's a little bit of race involved in that. That that's not really explored in the film. No. To be fair. Um, they all fly off in a helicopter. They see some backwards hillbillies having a zombie shooting party with the army on the ground. Yeah, and Stephen says that those rednecks are probably enjoying the whole thing. And then we have a, <laughs> a song, I'm a Man. I'm assuming yeah. it's called I'm a Man, but um, the gist is it's a song about being a man and all the manly stuff that men do. Uh, whilst we have this montage of very manly men shooting these zombies, having a beer, having a good old time. Uh, <laughs> it's quite funny, really. When they land the helicopters to get fuel, we see a big forehead, big foreheaded zombie approaching them. Yeah, so they've gone off to explore the area where this station... Uh, I don't know what it is, a pet, petrol station? Yeah. Um, sort of out in the middle of nowhere. So Stephen's... Uh, St- no, not Stephen. Fuck's sake, Chris. So Roger is filling the helicopter and Big Forehead Zombie is looming behind. The others have gone off to uh, investigate and, and find what's there. And uh, so the zombie gets up on a crate, doesn't it? Yeah. Whilst the helicopter's still going and uh, the helicopter blade cuts off the top of his head. <laughs> it's a great special effect, though, yeah. to be fair, because that the top of his head gets ripped off so quick. Yeah. <laughs> and then just the blood pours down. Um, it must have been so much fun doing these 
sort of death scenes, these quite elaborate ones. Yeah, and it's it's funny, really, because you look at this now and all the elaborate death scenes in this, it's very ahead of its time, considering inventive death scenes didn't really come into play until uh, the 80s slasher films. Well, yeah, really. Because, I mean, you look at it, I think, House, like, uh, um, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas, films like that, in Night of the Living Dead, um, perfect example. They weren't trying to stylize their kills, they weren't trying to make them fun, they were just trying to make a straight-up horror film. Whereas yeah. this plays around with it a lot more. Yeah, and there's, there's, I think there's budget constraints there as well. But also, I think because you're killing zombies, you can go all out. Yeah. You know, because there's absolutely no attachment there to them. You can just be as absolutely ridiculous as possible. Uh, this and is quite a ridiculous scene, but it's a really fun scene. I was going to say, unless you're uh, Stephen, who just beats a zombie with a hammer and then has a fall whilst he's trying to hit another one. <laughs> so Stephen, so during all this, Stephen's grabbed and uh, he had a hammer in his hand and he drops it. Stephen is very much a klutz and he does a lot of things wrong. One thing that Dawn of the Dead does really well is likeable but very flawed characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of them, and they're not, it's not flaws as in playing into stereotypes either. It's, it's just characters, we find a connection with all four of them, but they do have their flaws. Yeah. And, you know, in a couple of cases, it's their undoing is these flaws. Flawed people exist everywhere, you know, doesn't mean we hate them. It's just these are on show during the film. So Stephen uh, gets grabbed, he falls, he's wrestling with the zombie. He keeps telling Francine to run. Yeah. And Francine, you can tell she's in too much. She wants to help him, but he keeps telling her to run. So she's just kind of stuck there. She's like, well, what do I do? Stephen manages to save himself, grabs the hammer and, and hits him, but uh, hits the zombie. But running away, he takes a swing at another zombie, <laughs> yeah. doesn't he? But he, like, clotheslines it and, like, falls over as well. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's very uh, slapstick, Yeah, this scene. Very slapstick. But it's quite telling about... Stephen doesn't think Francine could help him. No, she could have done a way better job. So she could have. She could have just grabbed that hammer and smack. And we see that later in the film yeah. as she develops, is that she does take on uh, a more forceful role in mm -hmm. killing zombies, essentially. Um, but in this scene, he's like, oh, run, run, save yourself. Dickhead. Dickhead that he is. Because he's likeable, but he's a bit of a knob. <laughs> Two zombie children attack Peter, uh, and he shoots them both. Yeah, yeah, and you can... He didn't enjoy killing the kids. No. And in Ken Foray, the actor said that he didn't really enjoy filming that scene. Um, a hipster zombie... Uh, hipster? <laughs> Yeah, did you not see his flannel shirt? He's got a flannel shirt. Flannel shirt, he had a beard. <laughs> yeah, his hair was going now. I bet he wore a cap prior <laughs> yeah. to that. He, um, he's closing in on uh, Peter uh, and uh, gets shot by Roger because Stephen couldn't quite get the shot. No. this So this is the iconic image of the uh, zombie 
the main zombie in the film that was used in the advertising. I mean, I'm looking at a poster directly from yeah. where we're sitting and I can see it. See, he's he's got the grey, but he's also got very much a very damaged face. It's a great special effect. Yeah, he looks more like um, uh, like a fortune. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Stephen tries to shoot him, misses, almost actually gets Peter. Yeah. Um, which Peter is fuming about afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then Roger has to finish the job because Stephen is a shit shot. Yeah, so Peter aims his gun at Stephen and tells him never to aim his gun at anyone ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all have a bicker about where to go before finding, and I quote, a shopping centre. One of those big indoor malls. Like yeah. it was such a new thing. And it was at the time. <laughs> it was really new. Um, I'm sure we've all been to one now these days, but at the time we were doing well fancy. Oh my god, imagine if we had to hold up in Salford Shopping Centre. There wouldn't be a lot to do, would oh, there? There wouldn't be anything to do. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's good for practical stuff now, you know, but if it was a zombie apocalypse, what, you'd go to Card Factory and It'd get a few like cards. It'd be Manchester City yeah. Centre, wouldn't it? Uh, they notice there's some zombies in the mall, and Stephen thinks uh, that they're there because of instincts and because it was an important place in their lives. Which I mean, if true. that if that really doesn't bring the uh, commentary home, then yeah. what does? And there's moments throughout the film uh, that that do that very clearly, uh, very quotable lines that do that, and yeah, it is whatever he's saying. You know, these people were loved them all so much, and and you know, consumerism that this is the of all the places. Where their zombie instincts would take them, it's the mall. Yeah. It's not their families, no. you know, to their families' homes. It's not, you know, to a gym, <laughs> sports. You know, what's important to these people is buying stuff. Yeah. And that's why they need to go to the mall with their zombie brains. Francine is absolutely repulsed when she finds a kind of spam. In the storage area, where they soon create their hideout. I've never had spam. Have you? Uh, I think I have. Not that I, I don't remember ever, ever I having I think it's spam. from choice. I may have, like, when I was, like, five or six, but yeah. I don't remember ever having spam. I wouldn't purposely go out and buy it, so I understand no, I why think. she's so disgusted. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, come on, Francine, there's not many other options, is there, love? Yeah. <laughs> Roger tells her to be grateful because it's got a ring pull on it and she didn't bring a tin opener. There we go. God, imagine if you, uh... You have to open tins to survive, Gary. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we've never really bought high quality tin openers, have we? <laughs> so. <laughs> Stephen has a nap. Uh, Peter and Roger go zombie hunting. Um, Francine's given a gun, but she's reluctant. At first. Yeah, she she's she didn't really know what to do no. with it, and I think maybe she feels like she doesn't really need it. She, she's very wary of the zombies and such. I think we've been kind about him up to now, but do you know who's really useless? Steven. It's <laughs> fucking so he really useless. Is. He really Jesus is. Christ. The first thing he does when they get there is have a nap. <laughs> no, because he's been... No, I'll defend Stephen. Poor Stephen. He's the one who's been um, piloting the helicopter. Oh. So the rest of them how, have had how sleep. for him. Yeah, but the rest of them have had sleep. <laughs> They've all napped and he can't. Earlier in, uh, whilst he was piloting the helicopter, Peter had to wake him up, didn't he? Yeah. Because he was nodding off at the uh, wheel. 
whatever it is to you. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've never ridden in a helicopter. I'm going to say wheel at the wheel. Peter and Roger grab the keys to the stores and turn all the electricity on, which makes for a lot of confused zombies. Um, yeah, so this is a little bit of a slapstick moment. Yeah. They decide, they, they manage to get into some sort of control room and decide uh, putting on the music would be good to cover the noises of them moving around. Um, and then they're like, actually, screw it, let's just switch it all on. So we get these fountains start up, you get the escalator start up, and the zombies have no idea what's going on, yeah. and they're falling over, and yeah, it's, it's quite a funny slapstick moment. Uh, Pete uh, and Roger make a run for it and open a clothing store. Uh, they shoot and punch some zombies before locking them out. And Stephen felt a bit left out, he wants to be one of the big boys, so he goes to join in. And Francine is fuming at this. Well, he's... Yeah, because he's a fucking dumbass. And what does he take? The gun. <laughs> yeah. So he takes the gun with him because he wants to get involved with the big boys. And he's left Francine by herself. Yeah. Without anything to protect her. Yeah. And just because he wants to fit in. Yeah. Just, just because he wants to be the protagonist of the story. Well, Peter and Roger there go shopping. Uh, they distract the zombies by banging on a window to get their attention. Stephen goes to uh, the control room where they were before and comes face to face with a bearded zombie. Yeah, he does. There's a great shot of him in the control room. He's found uh, a gun, uh, like a handgun, uh, rather than the big rifle that they had. And uh, he's filling it with bullets. And in the background, we see through the window, this zombie walk past. Yeah. It's a great shot. Uh, and because Stephen is Stephen, he then starts trying to shoot at the zombie and miss him. Yeah, and it's in... So the control room is inside this kind of boiler room. Yeah, it looks like a boiler room. It looks like a boiler room. So I don't know if this is... Uh, physically possible i'm not sure but he's shooting and hitting the pipes in yeah. there and it's bouncing around yeah uh is that a real thing i no idea i think it might be it might be and this is the turning point now where peter is given his famous nickname uh well peter gives steven his famous nickname and calls him flyboy for the first time flyboy so, uh... Are we going to refer to him as Flyboy for the rest of, course, of the so podcast? To avoid confusion, Stephen is Flyboy. Uh, he eventually shoots the bearded zombie. Uh, Peter and Roger use the distraction of the gunfire to their advantage. Peter runs with the shopping cart, gets attacked, uh, throws a zombie over the banister. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, saves Flyboy from a few other zombies. Yeah, so Peter is definitely the action hero yeah. of this film. And that's where, so you had uh, Dwayne Jones in the Night of the Living Dead, mm. who was an, a black action hero. He was really the hero yeah. of the film. I, I look at him as the only likeable character in that film. He was. He was the protagonist. Yeah, he was. He was the protagonist. He was, you know, the hero. Um, and he should have been the one that survived. Spoiler alert, he gets shot right at the end. Uh <laughs> So you see this develop more in Ken Foray, in yeah. Peter, who I think is even more of an action hero. Mm. He's throwing zombies over the side, he's shooting, 
He's you know, getting the plans together. He's the hands-on guy. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that's really a development from the Night of a Living Dead character. I Forgive me, I forget. Is it Ben? Yeah. Ben in Night of a Living Dead. Um, it's a big development for horror cinema in general in the 70s. Yeah. Because, I mean... You know, outside of black exploitation, you don't really get a lot of African American no. protagonists in horror back yeah. then. Um, but then you got a film of this scale, uh, and you know, the action hero of the film is an African American. Yeah, and and he's he's really the guy that you you kind of rooting for because mm. he, uh, I feel like him and Francine are probably more likable. They're less flawed than the other two. Yeah. We'll get on, obviously get onto that a little more, but I, I think him and Francine are really the the two that we're really rooting for. Yeah. I think. So they all run back into the clothing store and uh, we get a great jump scare where a zombie looks like a mannequin and uh, jumps out at Roger, who stabs him in the ear with a screwdriver. A fun fact about this scene, when I was uh, really young, this... This probably would have been the first image of... One of the first images of horror I've seen because for some reason the primary school I was at had a book about films in their library and this image was in there and I was like... Oh my God. And it was fucking... It terrified me as a kid. Looking back at it now, I was like, did not check that before putting it in yeah, a primary Jesus school Christ. library? Um, yeah. <laughs> that was the image I knew from it. It's also um, to correct a continuity error. Yeah. So... Uh, Roger was running around with this jumper tied around his waist and the continuity continuity error was that in one scene he had it on and then the next scene it gone yeah and there was nothing to explain why so they just had this scene uh, and a great kill of the, the screwdriver going into the zombie's head and the zombie grabs hold of the jumper and won't yeah. let go so he has to untie it and run off um, Francine is still fuming. Uh, Peter, Roger, and Flyboy crawl through vents, and a Harry Krishna zombie walks towards Francine and gets a flare waved in the face. Yes, yeah, so a very th- iconic image. <laughs> this zombie. It is. It is actually, and it's probably the scariest. And, and, and I hope it's no insult to Harry Krishna's, um, but it, it's quite a striking image. Yeah. Um, ex- yeah, definitely a striking image. But this all occurs because Dumbass Stephen was going to go up into the... Uh-huh. I'm going to call it the apartment because it is kind of an apartment, isn't it? Yeah. So he was going to go up into the apartment, but the zombies would have just followed him. So that's why they had to go through the vents and such, uh, you know, to, to get away. Um, but this Harry Krishna realised... So it must have had a little bit of intelligence about it. Yeah. And realised, oh, something must be up there if they were going to go up there. So uh, he does. And uh, Francine is left to fend for herself with just some flares. Yeah. I mean, eventually they save her and knock the zombie out. Um, and they've actually killed his zombie. <laughs> oh, I don't know. He had it, it smashed into his face, though, isn't it? True. I think maybe it did some brain damage. Uh, they all sit around and listen to the radio whilst Flyboy tells Peter and Roger that Francine is pregnant. Now, this is another very progressive moment in this film because Peter uh, offers to abort it because he knows how to. Um, <laughs> I've heard this in a few of the podcast episodes I listen to on this film. It's a very good point. 
How the fuck does Peter know how to do this? He's like an abortion expert. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm not sure why. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's just such a strange a, thing to it's offer. It's a weird one, isn't it? I, I don't. I don't. I don't know the sort of sociology around that. <laughs> Um, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess, but maybe, you know, he learnt it from a family member, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, this is sort of where Peter's a little flawed. Um, yeah. Particularly from 2020 standards, where you're a bit like, who the fuck does he think he is? <laughs> asking the boyfriend if he wants well, an abortion yeah. and not asking Francine herself. But that, uh, yeah, but this gets raised literally within a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fact that Flyboy turns down the offer when it's not really his choice to make and Francine isn't, you know, she makes it clear she's not happy with the fact that he turned down the offer. Yeah, on her behalf. Yeah, on her behalf. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but I just think it's, it's very progressive that you know, a film in 1978, uh, and I think it was very progressive when Black Christmas did it, uh, is providing that option. That, you know, you look at a lot of films, but then if someone's pregnant and they're pregnant, that's it, they're going to have the baby, and it's often the plot of a film. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is basically saying, no, this doesn't have to happen. You've got your choice. The choice is there. The, yeah, the choice is given yeah. to the wrong person, uh, but the choice is there. Yeah, so, no, I understand where you're coming from, whereas... You know, previous films would never even have mentioned the no, word no. at all. For me, this made me look at the character of Peter a little different. Mm. Um, maybe he is maybe a little heartless yeah. in his delivery, which, you know, real people have their flaws, and this is his. Yeah. We still think he's great. He's still our action hero of the piece. Mm -hmm. But he's not perfect. And none of them are perfect. Which makes them more real. Which in turn makes them more believable and more likeable. Yeah. Because they feel real. So when these things happen to them, we feel, you know, the same sense of tension that we... That they're feeling. Yeah. That we, that we do in other films where we like the characters. I say this all the time on this podcast, and I do apologise, but when you like the characters, everything means so much more. Yeah. So you have to have character development in these films. In the remake, I swear someone actually has a zombie baby. <laughs> yeah, I think they do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I that, was, that may have been a nod to the scene. but um... might have been. I remember it being a little fucking CGI zombie baby, if I remember <laughs> right. I need to rewatch that film. I do, I do enjoy it. It is a good remake. Uh, zombies are having a great time in the mall, whilst the guy on the TV talks about how they're not cannibals and they're not human. Yeah, so he's saying that the, the, the zombies are more animalistic than human, with very limited motor skills. Uh, and... He's reminding people, and he's getting shouted at as well by people who don't believe what he's saying. Yeah. Who don't, aren't believing the scientists on this. Uh, and he's saying, we must not think of them as friends or family and they should be destroyed on sight. Uh, this is the point where we have the turning point for Francine, uh, where she tells him not to treat her any different because she's pregnant and she wants to be included in all the plans. This is her step-up scene. This is where she 
uh, takes charge and makes it clear she is as much a protagonist as everybody else. Essentially, absolutely. And uh, what I've got written down here is is sort of quoting her and it says, I want, I want, I yeah. want. And it's about time, you know, her voice was heard, especially after what happened, because Stephen was very flippant about the whole thing. Potentially she, she, she would have died and it was all Stephen's fault. Yeah. Um... So he was quite flippant about that. So she's had about enough now. Yeah. You know, she won't be their den mother. She, you know, she wants to get involved. She wants to do things because she actually thinks that she can help. Yeah. It's not in the sense of Stephen wants to get involved because he wants to be the action hero. She wants to get involved because she might actually have some good ideas. Mm -hmm. Stephen has good ideas as well. Yeah. When he's not going full throttle into things. But she might have some good ideas as well, and she might be able to help. Yeah, so at this point, Peter says that, he, you know, uh, he wants her to stay there whilst they go and do their lorry plan. Um, but she responds to that straight away, okay then, but I want to learn how to fly a helicopter in case Flyboy dies. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is very important for her to, to sort of say, actually, this is what I want to bring into this. You teach me how to, you know pilot that helicopter yeah because if something does happen to steven which i'm sure in the back of her mind she's like it's very likely because he's acting an ass yeah <laughs> then she wants a way of getting out of there would you like to explain their lorry plan because it seemed very stupid it's like a dumb idea so I, I yeah i always struggle with this one so the lorry plan was literally to park a bunch of lorries at the front of the mall yeah. Uh-huh. To stop zombies? <laughs> the zombies are always there. And so they I, can literally crawl underneath it. <laughs> I wasn't really sure why they wanted to park a load of trucks out front. Make it more difficult for other people to get into the mall. But I think this is what's great. Really happen yeah. later. And it, later on, we get to see that this makes it more obvious that there's people there. And this is uh, such a great scene because... This plan is so stupid. It seems like it's going absolutely nowhere. You feel like you've missed something in the film because it's such a stupid plan. But then this is coming off the back of Francine saying, yeah, let me get involved and let me map out plans. And it shows clearly she's the one who has better ideas. She's the one who has more of a survival instinct than, you know, these three characters who, I mean, I think Peter's the smartest out of the three of them. Um, but eventually it leads to Roger getting bitten. Yeah, it does. What's it, it doing this dumbass plan? It goes nowhere. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't really sure of the plan. You know, if anyone wants to explain it to us, then, you know, go ahead. But it feels like a bit of a weird plan. And um, Roger goes absolutely full throttle into it, doesn't he? Yeah. He's re Considering how he was at the beginning with the whole zombie thing, he's yeah. quite squeamish. He's actually really enjoying himself and really getting into it. Yeah. So it's and very much a turning point for his character as well. Very much a turning point. And he gets complacent because of it. Yeah. So he's really, he's enjoying himself so much. And he says, he calls them bastards. Uh, he's definitely on the, the idea that it's us against them now. Mm-hmm. Um... And he gets complacent and he managed, he gets bit in yeah. the leg. 
And, and is it the arm as well? Or does he get shot in the arm? I don't. Uh, he gets bit in the arm as well. He gets bit yeah. in the arm. But the leg is the main wound. And he gets bit in the leg. He's, he was have it, Peter had to save him once. Francine had to save him. Yeah. But he's going so in the zone mm-hmm. that he's not taking any notice. And that gets him bit. Yeah. And it's all because he leaves his fucking bag in a lorry. And yeah. he's so desperate to get this bag back that he, he gets bitten. Yeah. And yeah. Do you... <laughs> he's so desperate to start running over more zombies. And speaking of desperate, fucking Flyboy is so desperate to have friends at this point that they're out there doing their lorry plan. And he's just fucking flying about in his helicopter doing nothing. Yeah, but that's the point. He's meant to be watching watch out. Yeah, but what's he going to fucking do? <laughs> <laughs> he can't exactly do much whilst he's flying the helicopter, can he? Well, he brought Peter <laughs> attention to Peter that Roger was in danger, to be fair. Well, it's the only useful thing he did in that scene. <laughs> Whereas Francine, she's at the top of the mall and just shooting, like, from the top of there, in perfect shots. Yeah, yeah, she is, actually. <laughs> she's, quite, she's a good shot. She's actually a really good yeah. shot. She's on top of the mall... And she manages to get one of them and save Roger from being bitten, you know, the first time. Yeah. And then he just acted an ass more. So she's actually a really good fucking shot. Yeah. And this is the first time we see it and she's really accurate. And after uh, they go back into the mall, Francine bandages Roger up in the storage room. Uh, Peter and Flyboy go to the weapon shop and get some guns. And the four of them make a run for it in- <laughs> In a very comical image uh, of Roger in the shopping cart. Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously he's been bitten now, so he can't walk, and they they're all going around, aren't they? In yeah. The, uh, and he's in his shopping shopping cart. I I found it quite interesting that when Stephen and uh, Stephen and Peter are getting ammunition from the gun store, uh, the gun store very much was um, geared towards hunting yeah. animals. And uh, you had African music playing and, and a lot of images of elephants and lions. And that really gave the impression that they're, gonna, they're going off like a hunt, like a safari yeah. hunt um, as well, which I thought was a, a, an interesting touch that they gave. Because it could have just been a gun store yeah. without any music or any imagery, really. So I, I found it quite interesting that now we see... You know, obviously we've seen uh, Roger turn from quite squeamish to really enjoying himself, but the other two are, are more that way now, mm-hmm. and they they're going on a zombie hunt. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Peter shoots some zombies and they lock themselves in the clothing clothing store again. And Francine has like two what the fuck are those flamethrower type things? I'm <laughs> not sure. Yeah, it's like gas canisters, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. the flames come from. Mm. Uh, she suggests that they get in the car in the mall. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, Roger gets in the car. Uh, a zombie digs a hand into his bandaged up leg and Peter shoots it. Oh, yeah. That's squeamish. And uh, <laughs> meanwhile, back at the clothing store, Francine, a nun gets a gown caught in the shop door and Francine politely lets her out. <laughs> she does. Francine's still in that phase of seeing these as people. Yeah. She still see because really what she should have done was shoot the nun in the head. She yeah. should or set her on fire or something. She, you know, the others would probably have killed the nun, but she kind of took mercy, and I, I think throughout Francine is the one that still looks at these zombies yeah. as people. And the nun just walks away. She doesn't even try attacking. She does actually anything. walk away. 
May, maybe that's, you know, furthering what was said earlier in the film about, uh, from the priest. Yeah. So these are two religious people about, you know, stopping the gunfire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how we can sort of solve the issue. Yeah. Uh, Roger drives the car through the mall with Peter and Flyboy. Um, Flyboy is shooting zombies from the boot. Uh, they go to the doors, they lock the doors to the mall, and uh, Peter and Flyboy, after this, they continue to map out plans whilst Francine nurses Roger. Um, again, like uh, Peter's abortion skills, Francine is a, a great nurse. She is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she she kind of, it, she's really taken on that uh, role. Uh, she said earlier that she, she wouldn't be den mother. But then she has kind of taken on that motherly role with Roger. I mean, you can look at it like that. Or you can look at it like she's still just head of everything that's going on now. Yeah. She, you know, she is in charge. She's making sure Roger's, you know, all right. She's thinking of plans of driving the car through. That worked, clearly. Yeah. You know. And I, I would say it's a bit of both, to yeah. be fair. Because she still has those... I mean, you know, she is pregnant. She has those motherly instincts yeah. to look after you know, and she is the one that sort of nurses Roger for this point. A Peter and Flyboy gather the zombie corpses to clean the place up whilst Francine and Roger do a bit of shopping and we get a whole shopping montage, don't we? Yeah, we do. <laughs> I love scenes like this in the film because they, they are quite comical, aren't they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this one ends with Francine giving Flyboy a haircut that looks absolutely no different to how it was there with before. Um, but w- what they do is they they sort of they kind of um looking at things that aren't very important at that time it, does that make sense yeah so so you have Stephen and peter taking out massive wads of cash yeah from the bank mm-hmm. um and peter's handing it over to Stephen, and you know they're like oh you never know when this will come in handy mm-hmm. well Spoiler alert, you're in a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Money doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're looking at food, but they're, they're looking at loads of clothes and, and stuff. And it's just kind of stuff that isn't really necessary. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I, I like these sort of scenes. And they, they go to an arcade. and they, Yeah. They, they're shooting ducks, isn't it? One of the games is a duck It hunt. is, yeah. What's really good in this scene is Roger playing um, the this racing game where his car gets covered in some sort of mud or whatever, and it looks like blood, and you see he's having that moment, because he obviously hasn't changed into a zombie yet, and he just has like, yeah. a moment where he pauses, and I just thought it was a really nice touch to it, to let you know you're still watching a horror film, and this guy's still going to want to have some blood soon. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Um, after this, we get the famous line of dialogue uh, where Peter tells us something that his grandad told him when there's no more room in how the dead will walk the earth. Of course, this is all over the posters and the trailers. and Yeah, and this is essentially saying, really, we've done it to ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, think, I don't think there's really two ways of looking at it. I, I, I generally think what Romero is trying to say is that... There's so many shitty people that have lived and died yeah. on the planet and, you know, 
you could look at it as ruining the planet, you know, and then you could bring in ideas of, you know, environmental uh, and, and search that room is, uh, that hell is full. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no mention of heaven being full. It's no. hell that's full. <laughs> there's too many people there. Uh, Roger's freaking out. They gave him some morphine and Peter offers to stay with him. And uh, Roger tells Peter to take him out when he comes back, but he's going to try and not come back and try not to kill him if he does. Yeah, and then we get this really fantastic scene of Roger becoming a zombie. Yeah. He goes under the sheets and then comes back up very slowly. Peter's there with the gun. He knows what's mm-hmm. up. And the TV's playing in the background. And that's the, the, the audio that we get is the TV. Um, and the scientist on the TV is saying that we should feed the zombies. Mm. So instead of, you know, we're never going to be able to kill them all. Um, so maybe try and live with them. Yeah. Like their animals, keep them as pets, you know, which is a really weird one. And, you know, the, the audience is having none of it. Um, and he's saying that we must remain logical, not emotional. Yeah. Uh, which is really great because obviously Peter is about to shoot a friend in the head. But this friend is a zombie and you've got to look at it in terms of, you know, that's not Roger anymore. That is a zombie that needs to be gotten rid of. Yeah. Because he'll get you, you know. Uh, So they they bury him under a a bit of grass in the mall. Um, Peter, not Peter, uh, Flyboy and Francine do a bit of target practice. Yeah, I find it quite... um, interesting that they give Roger a proper burial yeah whereas the zombies that they got rid of earlier all were just thrown into the freezer because they had to get them out the way or they'd start stinking the place out but then Roger gets a proper burial Mm -hmm. and it's sort of that distinction between remembering that Roger was their friend but then also, you've got to remember that the zombies had family and the zombies had friends and the, the zombies were real people too before yeah. they became zombies. You know, they're not inherently bad. It's just that's how they are. That's what zombies are. That's, yeah. that's the nature of a zombie. doesn't make them inherently bad people. Roger forgot that, really. Mm-hmm. And that was his downfall because he got a little too trigger happy. Yeah. Uh, so after this, they uh, have a meal, Francine and Flyboy, that's cooked by Peter, who's their waiter. Yeah. Um, and he has a drink on his own by Roger's grave. Yeah, Stephen proposes to Francine. Mm-hmm. Francine declines when she says, uh, we can't now, it wouldn't be real. Yeah. Which, well, yeah. I mean, he didn't pay for the ring. No. The ring doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Because he just took it from the mall. It didn't belong to him. He didn't work to earn the money for it. You know, they're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. Who the hell, you know, who's even going to go to the wedding if they get married? Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing means anything anymore because of how the world is. You know, the world's going to shit. It doesn't mean anything. What's the point? And I think Stephen struggles with that idea and he's a bit off with her isn't he yeah in bed the next day <laughs> yeah we get a post sex shot of him um just looking miserable 
Yeah. And I think some time must have passed between that scene and the next scene because Francine's now a lot more pregnant. Yeah, um, it's not really specified how long they're yeah. really there for. It feels like a very long time, really, because you see Francine's pregnancy and, and you can see she's a lot more pregnant in the next scene and they've done up the apartment to yeah. look like a proper apartment, a proper, like, front room. Yeah, she does her hair and makeup like a drag queen. She's, de- <laughs> she's slaying the game. Uh, the three of them have an awkward lunch together where Flyboy has an obsession with checking the TV, even though there hasn't been a broadcast in three days. Yeah, Stephen and Francine bicker over this. And uh, Francine asks, what have we done to ourselves? Yeah. So even in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, they still manage to bicker <laughs> yeah. over the TV. And I, I find it quite funny because just before that scene, uh, Peter and Stephen were playing cards with massive wads of money. Yeah. And they were just playing cards as if, you know, they were playing for matchsticks mm-hmm. because money doesn't mean anything. Nothing means anything anymore. And Francine realises that they've done it to themselves. Yeah. You know? Um yeah, absolutely. It's Very af- interesting. It's after this where Flyboy teaches Francine how to fly a helicopter. Mm-hmm. They're spotted by some bikers, including two leaders with moustaches, one of which is, of course, Tom Savini. Yes. And Tom Savini's moustache is out there. Oh, yeah, it's... proper handlebar moustache. Yeah. He's looking great. Uh, they're uh, the spying on the, holi- on the helicopter lesson, and they plan on breaking in on the night time. So, skip to the night time, they communicate uh, with the three of them indoors for a radio, uh, try and persuade them to let them in, but in the end they just uh, go towards them all with the intention of breaking in. Yeah, yeah, they're just like, fuck it, we're going to go. Yeah. Peter and Flyboy prepared to not make it easy for them to enter. They arrive, they shoot a bunch of zombies and break in. Um, they blow some of them up, like they're some sort of explosives. Yeah, but this is... So Francine is a bit reluctant to fight against the bikers. Yeah. Whereas Peter and Stephen are like, we're not going to make this easy for them. Yeah. Stephen even says, this is ours. We took this. Yeah. This more belongs to us. So even in a zombie apocalypse, there's infighting. And mm-hmm. we saw that in Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Between Ben and that fucking annoying, bigoted guy. Yeah. Even... In this, the real enemies aren't even the zombies. No. They're still bickering between people who cannot get along to resolve the zombie issue. I think that's very, very interesting aspect of the film. Yeah, and it's also really interesting in the fact that we get a montage of the bikers looting, killing and slamming pies into zombies' faces. And it kind of shows you a different side of people. It's like there's two types of people. You get... Um, you know, you get the main four protagonists who, when they first got there, they were just curious, mm. and then they started breaking into things and such. These bikers have gone there with the intention of looting, yeah. and killing. And... and what for? What does any yeah. of this mean? One of them goes to steal a TV, yeah, and the other one says, "Why are you stealing a TV? What are you gonna watch?" Yeah, and he's like, "Oh yeah," and just smashes the TV. Mm-hmm. Um, they steal jewellery from a zombie. Yeah. You know, what What for? They're just out to cause havoc, really. Um, and because they never had access to any of these things, 
in real life, they're like, fuck it, this, you know, this is what I've always wanted. Yeah. So we're just going to take it now. And I think the custard pie fight as well just shows that it's all one big joke to them. Yeah. I thought the custard pie fight when I first watched it when I was younger was quite jarring. Mm -hmm. But now I understand it's them just taking the mickey out of the zombies. Yeah. The zombies aren't a threat to them. Yeah, I think it's a great scene. I, I think yeah. it's, uh, I'm glad it was included. Mm. Uh, Tom Savini gives the zombie a machete to the head in, a, in another really iconic scene. Yeah, yeah, great special effects there. Um, there's more shooting and decapitations as they make their way through the mall. Uh, Flyboy's now hiding, Peter's shooting the bikers, the lights go out. Well, Steven's the first one to shoot. Yeah, so Flyboy's again, Steven, Steven gets ahead of himself, and this is his downfall. Yeah. This is his fault, and, you know, he shoots when he shouldn't have. Peter even says they're not after us. They're after the mall. Yeah. Um, so then all shit hits the fan, yeah. doesn't it, after Stephen shoots? Because now the bikers are after Stephen and Peter. Yeah. So the lights go out, Peter escapes into the vents, and uh, when the lights come back on, Flyboy is climbing up through uh, an elevator shaft, is that what they call them? Yeah, 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 yeah elevator shaft. Um, he's climbing up through there, gets shot in the arm. Peter shoots Tom Savini, and this is when we get his great stunt where he falls over the banister. Well, jumps over the banister, very clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. But before then, sorry, that's Peter really getting revenge. Yeah. Because uh, this, uh, I think they call him Blades because he's got a machete. Blades chase, he's the one that sort of is after Peter. Yeah. And he calls him Chocolate Man, mm. and, you know, a, a racial slur, really. And again, it's just this idea that these people in the middle of a zombie apocalypse still can't get over their, their bigoted ways. Yeah. It's, you know, a, a real sort of indicator of a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Tom Savini's dead. Zombies uh, eat one of the bikers and pull us insides out. They do. <laughs> this, yeah, these are very grotesque. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of also like... If it can go that far because it's deserved. Yeah. Again, it's still very comic book style. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's the zombies and the um, bikers that get it sort of the most grotesquely. Yeah, zombies uh, barge into the lift where Flyboy is, uh, where he's trying to escape from and to bite him. So that's it. Flyboy's been bitten now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Peter Tarts Francine, they might still be alright because he heard his gun. But uh, no, he is not all right. He's not all right. Uh, a zombie's arm's getting his blood pressure checked. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so there's these comical scenes. Very uh, Again, very comic book style. Uh, quite ridiculous, over-the-top images, isn't it? And this is when we get the, uh, the zombie flyboy walk as he makes his big entrance out of the lift and leads the rest of the zombies to their storage room hideout. Yeah, like his face just completely changes. Yeah. He does this thing with his foot where it's like twisted almost, you know, 180 degrees. Yeah. It's really good. It, it, in terms of zombie acting, this is definitely up there at the best. Uh, Peter tells Francine to leave and that he doesn't want to go. Uh, before he shoots Zombie Flyboy. Uh, Francine leaves whilst the rest of the zombies close in on Peter. Uh, at this point, Francine doesn't try and stop Peter from shooting Flyboy. At this point, she's accepted this is what it is, she, this is what has to be well, done. She's the one telling Peter, let's just go. Yeah. Let's just go. Yeah. Le leave him to it now. She knows he's gone. She gets into the helicopter as the zombies climb up onto the roof. 
Peter attempts to kill himself but changes his mind, fights his way up to the roof. They get into the helicopter. He asks how much fuel they have and she says not much. And they fly away and we get the end credits over the zombies roaming the mall to some classic comedy music. But it's like a polka band music, yeah. isn't it? So it's very mall music, but it is quite comical. It's... <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, it's quite a funny image of these zombies. Um, we see zombies uh, uh, slightly earlier fighting over a severed arm. Yeah. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ, even they're fighting each other over stuff, you know? Uh, and essentially, we have the hope of seeing Peter and Francine leave in the helicopter. Um, but it, it is, if we're being quite cynical about it, it's like, well, they're probably doomed no matter what. Yeah. No matter where they end up. But I, I feel like we needed that hopeful ending. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, particularly for Francine, because she was, she wasn't in it the most, she didn't do the most, but I felt she was the heart of the, the, yeah, uh, of the film. She was the one that was the least flawed. Yeah, I think so. Uh, her and Peter, you know, um, Stephen and Roger made mistakes that were, essentially detrimental mm-hmm. mistakes. Uh, Stephen more so, and he did that throughout the film. Roger sort of was his own undoing, but Stephen was the undoing of the whole plan. They yeah. had it good there. They had it cushy, really, mm-hmm. at the mall. They'd lived there for quite a long time. Um, and he's the one that shot the biker first. If they had just let the bikers come and go... And they could have tried to resolve the, you know, the aftermath of mm-hmm. it. But shit really hit the fan because of Stephen. And you just, <laughs> throughout most, a lot of the film, you just want to give him a slap. Yeah. But you also feel for him because his death scene is actually quite sad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but, and Rogers as well. They, they get proper send-offs. Mm-hmm. Wh- whereas everyone else in the film gets, you know, very... Uh, either grotesque and over the top or momentary death scenes. Those are the two that get proper sort of death scenes. And we do feel for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Dawn of the Dead. That is Dawn of the Dead. Again, you know, I mean, I can't emphasize it enough. This is an absolute masterpiece. This is... It really is. And this is... Watching it now for the podcast is the first time that I really uh, looked deep into it. And, And sometimes... On this podcast, I can be a little long-winded. Uh, I do apologise, and maybe I look at things a little too deep. Um, but it's got so much to digest. Yeah. And I love a film that needs digesting, uh, but also manages to be a fun zombie action yeah. film. You know? It's great. It's really fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's iconic... Highly influential. Mm-hmm, massively. Um, yeah. If you haven't seen it, then what on earth are you doing still listening right now? Go and watch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if you are listening on, uh, and you're on social media, give us, uh, drop us a line on Horror Court Trash over Facebook and Instagram. Tell us what you think of Dawn of the Dead. Horror Court Trash on Twitter. Uh, we are, uh, I've just done that backwards. Wow. Yeah. My, my brain is gone. Um, so if you're listening on iTunes, uh, rate, review, and subscribe, like, and follow on Epic House. 
I'm dead at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, GazCruise92 on Twitter. I'm ChrisBarker823 uh, on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and the other one? Letterboxd. Letterboxd. And we'll be back on Friday uh, because it's Friday the 13th. <gasps> so we continue our long running series of discussing the Friday the 13th films uh, with part three. <laughs> yes, Disco 3D. Yes. Um, yeah. All right, film. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think there'll be a lot to discuss. It ain't the it. best, it ain't the worst. <laughs> and then we'll be back a week today uh, with Street Fighter. Now, excited for this one. I haven't seen Street Fighter since I was younger, so it should be a good watch. <laughs> when you say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> <your> <laughs> we will see you on Friday. Bye.